So today's subject is the last in this series on Elders uh, 101 that I'm calling Elders 101, and it's really kind of more like Elders, maybe it's 201 or 300 level class, because this is stuff people don't normally delve into and study, and, and it's, we pick up bits and pieces, but never look at it all in one thing. And so this last one is when elders sin. So to draw your attention to the issue, here is a headline from January 5th, 2012. Pastor's wife and mistress fight at communion day service in church. <laughs> That's the headline. According to Action 5 News in Memphis, Tennessee, parishioners at New Salem Missionary Baptist Church watched as a brawl broke out right in the middle of service, and now police have launched an investigation. A fight between two women near the church's choir section turned into a brawl between the two families, according to a police report. When officers arrived, only three people from the brawl were left, and they're all listed as both suspects and victims. At the center of the altercation are Beverly Milam, that's the pastor's wife, her nemesis, Terry Bell, and Bell's daughter, Chara Lumpkin. Bell and Milam agree on one thing. The fight began with a verbal confrontation at a Bible study last Wednesday. Milam said she told Bell to stop sleeping with somebody. And then she said Bell got in her face. Fast forward to first Sunday at New Salem. Bell said she was walking from the choir stand during the service around 1 p.m. when Milam approached her and said, are you going to do something today? Bell said she replied she was not going to get involved in something at church. At that point, Bell's daughter, Lumpkin, got between the two women, but a communion day catfight still followed. When officers arrived, they had to separate the women. The police report says Bell suffered scratch marks to her neck and upper chest, and her daughter had scratch marks on her neck, upper chest, and left side. Milam has a slightly swollen and bloodshot right eye. I'm sorry, it goes on. Uh, they declined to make official comments. Uh, it's, 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 it's both ridiculously silly and horrifying at the same time. It's like if we went to list how many things are wrong with this story, I don't know, because one thought spawns another thought, spawns another thought, spawns another thought, and you just go, well, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. But the one I want to focus on is, why is this pastor still there? Oh, one line I didn't read. I have to, have to read this line, because it's important to the, to the statement. Um, All parties in, involved said this has been an ongoing problem for several years. <laughs> so, so my question is, why is this pastor still there? What is going on? Why has somebody allowed this to get to this point? Why has anybody allowed this to happen? For whatever reason, they had not dealt with an elder who sinned. And why not? This is, this is the last in the series, and it comes from that. I'm working strictly from this passage in 1 Timothy 5. And so if you want to turn there, you can. It'll be 1 Timothy 5, verse 19. And we'll, we'll flip to a few, a couple other passages as we go through, but that's it. Uh, it's coming specifically from this passage. We find four separate instructions in the passage. Let me read it for you. 1 Timothy 5, 19 through 22. Do not accept an accusation against an elder, except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. I solemnly exhort you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias and do nothing in a spirit of partiality. Do not lay hands upon anyone too quickly and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. Okay, out of that passage, I come up with these four principles. One, do not accept an accusation lightly. Two, rebuke the unrepentant publicly. Three, do not show partiality. Four, do not appoint anyone too quickly. 
Don't make uh, that mistake. Okay, so first, uh, verse 19, do not accept an accusation lightly. Do not accept an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. You know, accusations are free and easy. It is so easy. And the way you do it, if you want it to be accepted, you don't step up in front of people and say, I accuse thee, thou vile sinner. Instead, you go and you walk up to your friend and you say, did you hear that Elder Ricketts? No, no, no. No, no, no. You, you want to make this, you want to do, this has to be a false accusation. It's actually a, it's actually a Ford man. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I will probably never hear the end of that. <laughs> Jeremy made me go there. Uh, it, it could be... Okay, it's already out of hand. <laughs> the, the first step to an accusation is, is, the easy step is gossip and rumor. Character assassination is what we call it, where you find someone and you, you want to hurt them and you can't find something, so you start spreading false rumors. Anybody can do it. It's easy. By the way, this is not how to sin 101 or you know, assassinate somebody. It, it could be based on a true event open to wrong interpretation. It's so easy to see something and ascribe a motive to it or say, oh, did you see such and such? I know why he did that, or that was a wrong thing to do. Or it could be something entirely fabricated by an enemy specifically to cause trouble and is false from the very beginning. And even among well-meaning people, it can cause trouble, uh, it can cause doubt, it can cause suspicion. Because you can be a person who, who is not involved in it at all. You're not trying to be involved, but you keep hearing. People, well, concerned, someone concerned hears the rumor and comes to you and says, hey, did you hear about Elder Ricketts? He's a Ford guy. <laughs> and, and, and now, I'm sorry, Dion is above reproach. <laughs> you will never convince me he's a Ford guy. I mean, it's just, but, but, uh, but it can cause doubt and suspicion. To the point that even a per, that I'm sorry, a, I want to re, let's stick to my notes, that a person who dislikes the elder or even one who likes him but has heard the thing repeated enough begins to doubt and think the person is guilty. And you know, that's, that's one of the principles of propaganda. If you repeat a lie often enough, people believe it's true. Uh, and, and it's one of the principles of false teachings, why people believe so many lies is because they hear them so often, they hear them publicly accepted, they decide it must be true without actually putting critical thought into it. Uh, Character assassination is an age-old method of getting rid of people you don't like. And and leaders are good good targets for false accusations or or for any kind of accusation. Leaders are targets. When you step into leadership, and I I tell people this regularly, maybe not always, sometimes people say, I wish you'd have told me. When you step into leadership, you put a bullseye on your back. You step up and you say, I'm a target, shoot at me. Because people will. People like to take down the people who are considered in charge or, or, or you know, important or whatever. You have stepped into public view and you have stepped into public scrutiny. And there are, peop- there are people who will not like you. There is nobody that is liked by everybody, right? Everybody does not like, 
I, I can't say it that way. There's, there's nobody that everybody likes. Everybody has people who dislike them. And people who dislike you, will, when you are in, in, in that public eye, might just decide to take it out on you. They might start talking about you. And, and some people, I, I'll go beyond might, some people will. Some people will. They will take shots at you. They'll take pot shots. They'll say things. There, there, are people who will not, there are people who will not like you for some reason. What are the reasons? Okay, I have personal history. In other words, you have a history with this person that goes back, and, and, and it just hasn't gone. It might be mannerisms. The way you scratch your head sometimes, the way you, that's not a mannerism. That's just bald is not beautiful. No, <laughs> uh, might be they don't like you because of your race. We know that is a real thing. Might not like you because of your age. Who does that old geezer think he is to stand up there on the pulpit and talk to me like that? He doesn't know what's going on. He's out of touch. We were at Silverwood. Bethany said she could tell me uh, from far away because of my shiny white hair. <laughs> I'm going, ouch. I, Mike isn't here. I put this one especially for Mike Bell. Man bun. <laughs> and we had a great discussion about what is your first impression of someone with a man bun? Uh, let's go beyond that, J.D. No. <laughs> he says, not today. <laughs> When you walk into a church, we had a lady walk into the church once. It was, it was, I think they won a Grand Prix or something like that. You know, big event, lots of people coming in. And uh, she was talking about this guy in their church that had a man bun, and Mike Bell walked by. And I don't remember what exactly his hair was like. I'd like you to meet Mike. He's one of our elders. <laughs> and the poor lady, I should not have done that to her, because she kind of went like, <laughs> I, I, I'm just going to be quiet. Uh, there's lots of reasons why you might choose, might choose not to like somebody. Uh, it doesn't have to be a good reason. The reason. And by the way, the reason doesn't have anything to do with the accusation. The reason is your motivation for making an accusation that may be completely unrelated to anything, but the fact is, is you don't like them and you feel somehow justified or legitimate to, to, to make false statements about them. So you verify the accusation. First thing you ask someone, did you witness this personally? And about 90% of claims or, or charges will fall, drop aside right then. Uh, well, no, I heard it from my cousin's friend's barber <laughs> you know, or something like that. No, it, I, actually, I didn't see it personally. Uh, it, it, can anyone verify what you say? Well, no, nobody was there with me, but I saw it. Okay, require two or three witnesses. No lynch mobs in the church. Always require witnesses. You, you, you make sure it's a true thing because by the virtue of being in charge, you are a target and, and will take shots. So that's verse 19. Verify uh, the accusation. Verse 20, rebuke the sinner uh, publicly. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. And when I say rebuke the sinner publicly, it's not the sinner, it's the unrepentant sinner. You hear what it says? Those who continue in sin. Your version of the Bible might say those who are unrepentant uh, rebuke publicly. Uh, those who continue in sin, a.k.a., also known as the unrepentant. This is interesting because the elder who sins is given the opportunity to repent just like everybody else. He's not treated differently in this, right? Uh, this Matthew 18, we're gonna, let's turn there if you don't mind. Uh, 
15 through uh, 17 is the classic passage to turn to to talk about church discipline. It is, it is just laid out in steps. Matthew is sometimes called the teacher's gospel. He teaches principles and, and things like that better than anyone else. And this is an example of that, where he teaches how to approach someone who has sinned uh, in church. And so he gives us this, and so we look at Matthew 18, starting at verse uh, 17 or 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that on the testimony of two or three witnesses, every matter may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen to the church, he is to be to you as a Gentile or tax collector. So what are they saying? They're saying, give the person time to repent. And uh, tell them, conf confront them with their sin, give them time to repent. That's the opportunity. If they don't listen with one person, then take two or three more. And if they listen to them, then it's done. You drop it. It's no more. But if they still refuse to repent, then you go public with it. That's, that's see, what we have when he, when he says in 1 Timothy 5, those who, re those who continue to sin, he's implying Matthew 18 has been observed. He's implying the proper approach to talking to someone who has been in sin has happened. And so the elder has been approached the same way as everybody else. This is not different. He's not, we don't go more quickly to judgment with the elder. We do not rush into judgment. We give them the opportunity to straighten it out, to try to get things right. Uh, it, it, is, it is approached that way. That's the first thing we see about this is they're not treated differently. Uh, but if they're not treated differently, then why is this mentioned here? Why even bother to say it? Because he's specifically talking about elders here, and he's not talking about Joe, Joe, John Q. Public in the, in the pew. He's not talking about anybody and everybody. He's specifically talking about elders. And the reason why is because people are afraid to. Or don't, for whatever reason. For whatever reason, some guy can be in the church for years having an affair and everybody know it. And they still leave him as past you. How can that be? First of all, I'm pretty sure no one here would go there. <laughs> pretty confident that would not happen. Uh, but it, it is what was going on there. But why is it mentioned here as if it's different? And the answer is because it is different. It is different. People want to sweep it under the rug. For some reason, when that person is public and a representative of the church, we like to shove that aside and not deal with that. Uh, and when I say we, you know, I'm just speak, saying people in general. I think there is a fear. This person has a public forum. Do you really want to pick this fight? It's like, you know, do you want to pick a fight with the news, the editor, because he's got, uh, uh, he, he, he buys ink by the gallons, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, but what we have, have here is, is a removal of doubt about how to proceed, right? Because someone can say, well, he's, this person's the pastor, this person's the elder. We have to treat them different. We can't do it the same way. By virtue of this, ver this verse, that doubt is taken away. No, no, they are dealt with the same way as anyone else. Those who continue in sin rebuke publicly. Do not leave people in doubt. Do not leave people wondering if some people are beyond reach. Do not let make people say, oh, well, that guy can't be touched because he's the pastor, or that guy can't be touched because he's an elder, or, or anything like that. You, there is nobody beyond justice. You know, 1 Timothy 3, 2 says, above reproach, 
when he talks about qualifications of an elder, he, he, you know, he has to be above reproach. doesn't mean he's beyond reproach. It means he's supposed to have a character that is above reproach. It doesn't mean he has a shield that nobody can reproach him if he really does wrong. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's not at all the same thing. It, it is entirely different. And then he says, uh, so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. And the Bible, this isn't the only place we find something like this. The Bible is strong on what I like, what I call, and you may have heard the phrase, deterrent sentencing, where the sentence is harsh enough that other people say, I don't want to commit that crime. And by the way, in America, we look down on deterrent sentencing as if it was a bad thing. Like, oh no, don't be that harsh. Deterrent sentencing doesn't work anyway. And we hear places where they do. You know, you steal and they chop off your hand. We go, how barbaric, how cruel. But on the other hand, other hand, <laughs> sorry, not intended. I just, you know, saw it as I said it. <laughs> It does certainly deter crime. I worked for a, an Italian when I was in high school who had served under Mussolini during World War II. And he was not a fan of Mussolini, but he said, while Mussolini was in office, you could lay your wallet on the street and walk away and come back hours later and it would still be there because nobody would touch it. And you might go, ooh, I like that. I'm going, no. <laughs> there were other problems with Mussolini. But... but uh, Deterrent sentencing works. It does deter crime. He says, he says, rebuke them publicly so, so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning, so that they will not want to commit to do the same thing. When the punishment is clear and public, people learn to avoid the crime. It's, it's that simple. Clear and public. You know, the public stocks, anybody ever say, yeah, public stocks would be kind of nice? Yeah, 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 a day in public stocks is probably way more effective. You know, public stocks, at the gazebo, wouldn't that be a great place for public stocks? <laughs> Especially on Wednesday night, we're over there praying. <laughs> this guy's over there saying, oh, it's bad enough I'm in public stock, but I got to listen to these guys pray. <laughs> it would, I think it would be huge. I, I mean, I don't know. I'm not, I, I didn't live, don't live in the day when they actually did them. I just know that uh, aside, I mean, I'm not even thinking about the shame. I'm just thinking about the total discomfort of, of being stuck like this for however long they did that. I don't know. When the pub punishment is clear in public, people learn not to do the crime. And when the sinful elder is put on display, everyone learns a lesson. Everyone learns that, that sin is not a thing that God plays with, and it's not a thing that God's people play with. And by the way, don't be afraid of the consequences. And this just needs to be reiterated because one of the problems, and we're going to look at, look at it, the next thing is show, show up, uh, favoritism. Uh, and I, I, I don't want to, um, you know, beat myself to the punch. But uh, people are often afraid of the consequences. They say, oh, no, but if we do that, what will people think? And I, and I just have to go back again to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5 is, is the famous story of Ananias and Sapphira. The couple that, that uh, sold some land and then decided, and Barnabas had just given a whole bunch of money. He'd sold some land and gave the money to the church, and everybody viewed him as a hero. And they liked that. They saw that. They said, hey, we can do that. They sold some land. They said, but let's keep some of the money back, which was fine. But then they lied and said, oh, yeah, we gave it all. Well, and then Sapphira went out on a shopping spree. <laughs> I don't know what she was doing. She just wasn't there. And they, they told Peter. Peter says, did you guys give it all? Oh, yeah, we did. And, and Ananias fell, fell down dead. Sapphira came back later. She fell down dead. 
And then we read this, chapter 5 of Acts, verse uh, 11 through 13. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard about these things. Yeah. Yeah, great fear. So it's like, why would I do this? At the hands of the apostles, many signs were taking place, and the people, they were, uh, the people, and they were all together in Solomon's portico, but none of the rest dared associate with them. In other words, people said, I ain't going there. That church? No, I'm not going there. They do that. But then we read this. And increasingly, believers in the Lord, large numbers of men and women were being added to their number. What's here says none of them would, nobody would associate with them, but the church was growing. How can those two both be true? That's easy. The, the fringe people, you know, the people who kind of like church or kind of want to be around those holy people or want to get a religious uh, high or, or something, those people said, no, no, because they recognized I'm not right for this and it's not right for me. But the people who were serious about their faith, or the people who became serious about their faith, and apparently more people became serious about their faith because of it, even though there was a surface, there was a keeping away. You know, God God was not afraid of people saying, no, no, I don't want to do be with these people. They're too scary. God was not afraid of chasing people away with some harsh discipline. I'm not, when I say harsh discipline, we're not talking about people dying. We're talking about publicly shaming, publicly shaming, the elder who sins refuses to repent. So rebuke an unrepentant elder publicly. That's what it says. That's what should have been done long before with that guy. As they were booting him out, they should have, they should have, you know, in my opinion, they should have immediately booted him out and then announced to the church why. Uh, not, not sweeping it under the rug, not hiding it, letting everybody know this is what happens to an elder who sins and refuses to repent. Okay, then he goes on, verse 21, do not show partiality. I solemnly exhort you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. This is, this is part of the answer as to why people don't get rid of pastors or church leaders who sin, is, is because there's, a, there's a, a kind of favoritism going on. Sometimes the people who are up in the pulpit, who are the best communicators, who are the best public speakers, who've got this bit and polish and the shine and the, and the presence and the charisma and, and, and the dyn- dynamism and all those things down so well, are morally corrupt. But they've still got the power. They're like Samson, who was morally corrupt but still had the power. And you go, God, why did you let him have that power when he was morally corrupt? And you kind of go, I don't know, but God does that. Uh, he, he doesn't immediately at least take those things away. Sometimes that's it. It's the Balaam factor, right? Balaam, Jude chapter 11, and, and uh, Jude, if you can find Jude chapter 11, you're, <laughs> you're awesome. <laughs> Jude verse 11. Jude verse 11 takes us back to the Pentateuch, the first five books, the book of Numbers. And in Numbers, the, the Israelite tribe, the Israelites, the, the three million Israelites are coming through and they're on their way to the promised land and they come through and Balaam doesn't want them around. He's scared to death of them, even though they're not threatening war on him. They, they just say, let us go by, but he's scared of them. He calls Balaam to curse them and Balaam comes down and he says, I can only say what God says. And three times, Balaam is taken to a different mountaintop and three times, Balaam gives... Uh, 
blessings on them. And he says, why? He says, I can only say what God gives me to say. And you think Balaam's a good guy. But then we find out that he's not the, the same Israelites that he, he blessed instead of cursed later killed him because he taught the ba- Balak, the, yeah, Balaam and Balak, he taught Balak, the king of the Moabites, to send his pretty young women down to seduce the Israelite army so that they would lose God's blessing and they would fall. And the plague came on them because of that. Uh, the, Moses and the priesthood dealt with it and they straightened it out after a, a great loss of life. And that's what Balaam did. And you go, well, Balaam, how could he do that? How could he speak for God accurately? It was prophecy. It wasn't just taking a piece of scripture and reading it. God was giving him this prophecy. He was a true prophet, but he was, he was, and he was proclaiming God. He said, I can only say what God gives me to say, but then he did. He gave, well, he gave them immoral advice. Here's what you can do. How can this possibly be? In Jude, we read this in verse 11. Woe to them, talking about people who sneak into the church, and try to be somebody. Woe to them, they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have given themselves up to the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. For pay they have gone the way of Balaam. They, they still have that ability to present and proclaim so well, but they are utterly immoral. They are after, they are, they are giving godly messages for worldly motives. Isn't that an interesting thing to do? You know, there's money to be made. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> Why are you laughing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Godly words for material gain. And, and, and sometimes these people are very good at what they do. And so people, the people in the pew, they look at it as a trade-off somehow. I, I, it, it's, it baffles me that you would say, but you know, that, that this, we know, we know he plays around a little. We know he does it, but he's so good in the pulpit. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry, Jeff's over there trying not to throw up. <laughs> it's, it's, but it's, and, and I say this, and it should not be that way, but it is. It happens. It's real. People really think like that. Sometimes people won't believe the sin is real. They hear the charge, they don't believe it. One of the famous fallen preachers of 30 years ago was a guy named Jimmy Swaggart. Some of you remember Jimmy Swaggart. Swaggart the braggart. No, <laughs> Jimmy Swaggart fell into moral sin. And, and maybe six months after that, I was out at Christian Heritage. I was, uh, my kids were going to school there, and, and I was um, doing some volunteer work. And another volunteer came up to me, and he started talking about how Jimmy Swaggart was framed. And I looked at him, and I go, what? He says, oh, he didn't do those things. And I said, what makes you think he didn't do that? He says, anybody who has those gifts that he had could not do those sins. It was all a frame. And I said, it wasn't a frame, it was real. No, no, it couldn't be a frame. He, just, he absolutely refused to believe that the charge was real. It was real. He publicly repented, um, kind of. Sometimes people think bringing it out and making it public will cause more harm than good. No, no, this is a scandal. We don't want a scandal. Let's sweep it under the rug. Think of the Catholic Church and what they swept under the rug for so long. No, no, we don't want that scandal. Wrong answer. The right answer is to to bring it out, publicly declare it, oppose it wrong. You know, one of the things it does when you publicly bring it out and proclaim it, you have let let everybody know that I'm not part of this. 
I'm not, I, I became aware of this and I exposed it because I am against it. It would be, it would be our way as, your way as a church, boy, that feels wrong, <laughs> uh, to say, no, no, we are not a part of what that person did. That person did that as soon as we found out. You remember in, uh, when American soldiers were caught torturing prisoners in, was it Afghanistan, Iraq? I forget which one it was. Iraq. Okay. Now, everybody said, the whole world said, see, they're just like us. They do the same things. And the answer was absolutely not. When they hear it, they applaud it. When we hear it, we stop it because we're the good guys. We're still the good guys because when we hear the evil going on, we stop it. But if you don't stop it and you join in and don't you let it go on and wink at it or whatever, then you have joined the bad guys. So one thing you do by this public uh, de- declaration is you say, we are not the bad guys. Uh, we, are, we are one of the good guys, but people are afraid of the, 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 the scandal. Don't want that scandal out. That scandal would cause too much damage. No, no, no. You let that scandal get out. You put a stop to it. Sometimes people are just afraid uh, either of, of what the person might be able to say to hurt them, uh, as in he's got the ability, he's gifted with words, he's, he's got the pulpit, people listen to him. If he starts saying things about me, then that would be too much, and I, I'm afraid of what he'll do. I'm afraid he'll speak against the church and cause damage to the church. I'm afraid of causing a church split, something like that. So I, I, had a, I knew a guy once who said, said, I agree, I don't like the pastor for X, Y, Z, but I, I'm, you're not supposed to speak against the Lord's anointed. And he went back. What he was doing is he's making an allusion to David and Saul. Saul was the first king of Israel who had basically become uh, an evil man, and God anointed David to be king after him. David had opportunities to kill Saul, and he did not take them. He says, I will not lift my hand against the Lord's anointed. And this man was applying, applying it that way to the pastor, saying, he is the Lord's anointed. I will not lift my hand against him, which is a very compelling-sounding argument, unless we had something like 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 17 through 19, which tells us to, to take action and to not put up with it and not ignore it. He tells us to do it. And so that, that analogy, as best you can say with it, is that's interesting, but it's inadequate. It does not go far enough. And sometimes people feel like they merely tolerate them, uh, sometimes actually endorse them. I don't know. It's, it's hard to follow. But he says, do not show partiality. Do not be swayed by, by, by your personal liking or appreciation or admiration or whatever it is you deal with that person as if it was someone you didn't know, heard of from far away, and did the. don't be swayed by who they are. I mean, look at the weightiness of how this is stated, right? You ready for this? Uh, let me read this. I solemnly exhort you. I solemnly exhort you. In the presence of God and in the presence of Christ and in the presence of his holy angels, don't show favoritism. Now, he could have just said, this is serious, guys. I solemnly exhort you not to show favoritism. But he doesn't. He says, you know what? This is important. I solemnly exhort you in the name of God. But this is really serious. I solemnly exhort you in the name of God and of Jesus Christ. 
And for some reason, he tacks on the angels. I'm going, where are angels at this point? <laughs> but it's how it feels small. But it just, he's, he's making this as absolutely serious and weighty as he can. Do not be swayed by favoritism. And, and why? Because we get swayed by what we can see with our eyes. And, and you know, we, basically, we look at Goliath, and we say, oh, he's big. And we forget what is behind us. And when he says, by the holy angels, do you remember the story of Elisha? where, where the, the Syrian army came down and surrounded him, and his servant says, oh, no, that we're surrounded. What are we going to do? And Elisha just says, oh, Lord, open his eyes so he can see. And what did he, 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 he answered that prayer, and what did he see? The angels of God, chariots of fire around, and there were more of them than there were of the Syrian army. And it's like, oh, in the presence of these holy angels, do not show partiality. Do not be intimidated. Do not be swayed. God is watching what you do. Jesus is watching what you do. Angels are watching what you do. Don't be swayed by itty-bitty little people. No bias for or against. If they deserve to be protected, then protect them. You know, you see the elder in sin. You go and you talk to him in private, and he repents and says, you know, you're right, I am so sorry. Then it's done. You don't go announce that publicly. You protect him. You protect his reputation. He is repentant. We all fall, or we all fail in some ways. There's none of us who is without sin. And when we fall into sin, if we can be restored, then the restoration is the best possible thing. But it's when someone refuses to repent, you do it. So if they deserve to be protected, protect them. If they deserve to be publicly rebuked, publicly rebuke them. Who the person is, how influential, how significant, or how threatening does not matter. The story we started with, that weird story of the fight in church, the article said it had been an ongoing problem for years. Why was that man still there? And we don't know what the reasoning of those people were. We don't know why they were there, what they thought, but for some reason they did not do what they should have done. And they ended up making the news so that somebody's using them as a bad object lesson 11 years later. Deal with the problem. And then finally, last point, verse 22, do not appoint someone too quickly. Check him out first. Know what you're getting into. Anybody can look good in a snapshot. You know, that's what it is like when the pastor comes in, rides in on his you know, best sermon. Oh, my beloved, repent. And that's a snapshot, right? That's the posed picture that you get at the you're your senior picture for high school. Well, you look so good, unless you're me. <laughs> My senior picture is so embarrassing. <laughs> and no, I don't have a sample for you. Uh, my graduation picture is worse. Put on that cap, my hair went boring. <laughs> People are going, you had hair? Yeah, it wasn't even white. Uh, anybody can look good in a snapshot. That, that's why one of the qualifications of an elder is that he runs his household well. The family test is so good because they are a reflection of what he really is like. Because you can't hide yourself from your family. What is his history? What is his track record? How long has he looked good or at least not looked bad? Because you, he says, do not lay hands on anyone too quickly and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. You share responsibility for the actions of people you appoint. You can't guarantee anybody because... Uh, First of all, the person may be scamming you and you think something. Or second, the person, people change. Sometimes good people fall. You can't guarantee anyone. But you can have good reason to feel good about people. You can have good reason to, to think someone's good. But, but an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of dealing with a bad pastor or elder. 
Okay. Now, all this to be said, Lord willing, you will never have to deal with that issue. Lord willing, uh, you know, we as a body will never have to deal with this kind of a thing. But if you do, do not shirk your duty. Right? Because the, the, it, one of the weirdest things about this and t- applying it to us is that this is written to one man, Timothy, who was in an office where he had the ability to appoint elders. And I am preaching it, and I am applying it to you, the congregation. <laughs> you go, well, that's very different from what is being said there. But, but God preserved this word for us. And we are a church without a denomination who does those things. We are a church where we do those things. Therefore, by the way, the membership class, we didn't talk about this one. <laughs> you have the responsibility of ousting the bad pastor or the bad elders, whatever they are. Hopefully the elders and the not bad pastor. <laughs> John gets to look for that one this time. I'm the bad guy. Uh, would take that on first. And when they did, they would present it to the church as a body. Uh, If it wasn't them, if they were not taking the action, then it's your job as a congregation to step up and do that. This is is hard, but that's why it says without partiality. Uh, This is something, if you want to protect the church, you need to remove the sinner from office. Let's close in prayer. Father God, I thank you for the protection you give us. I thank you for the blessings you've given us. And Lord, I ask that you protect this church in every way, including that you protect it from uh, elders, pastors, elder board that is wrong or doing wrong, wrong wrongly motivated, any of those things. Father, this church will be a blessing to everybody in it and, and that you would protect that and maintain it. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.